when Emily has an idea for a website. When the flaming fist ceramorphize. When the entire party depends on you. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Astra. And this is the 76th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, June 8th, and released Wednesday, June 12th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventures Pack, Lennon tells us his latest favorite website and map-making is just a small part of it. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover the D&D Adventures League Season 9 changes, and Lennon has a theory or two about the recent announcement of Baldur's Gate 3. After that, we check out some wisdom from the Masters as we continue our series on being a first-time DM before finally looking into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures packs. Do you always carry this machine bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid rule for! So we've covered a lot of generators on this site. In fact, if you go over to the heroesrisepodcast.com website and go to the Adventures Pack section, you will find everything that we've ever spoken about, including things like Donjon being the main big generator set that's out there. I recently came across another one that I have been using pretty much in all of my games ever since. Uh, this is fantasynamegenerators.com. And honestly, I'm surprised I haven't come across it sooner because it's literally one of the first results you get when you type in fantasy name generator into Google. So congratulations on the SEO there. I clearly need new glasses or something. Anyway, the website, as the name implies, features a ton of fantasy name generators, although it's kind of a little bit of a misnomer. You can get generators for pretty much anything on this website. So a little bit of background about this particular website. It was started by a single person called Emily, and uh, she started it out as a hobby. She knew that she wanted to create a website, but she also knew that she didn't want to make a blog and didn't want to go into articles. And so she thought, eh, let's make a few generators and see what happens. She never made a site before and learned everything that she needed as she went and started out and launched the site in March 2015 with a total of 15 generators. Since then, the site has grown and expanded and exploded, I think is fair to say, and now has over 1,500 generators for just about everything that you could imagine. So the broad categories are fancy names, real names, place names, other names, pop culture names, description generators, and then hopefully other generators. And going onto the website and clicking on, say, fantasy names will pop up alien names, Amazon names, and the list goes on and on and on. Dragonkin names, elf, orc names, guardian names, naga names, ninja names, werewolf names, zombie. There is so many different types of name generators that you can get on this website. My favorite ones to use are most often within the fantasy section, purely because you can get some things like the death name generator which brings up some random gods of death which you may or may not have needed in your games you can also get ninja and assassin name generators so it comes out with things like the mysterious striker and snow scar and other such names there are also a lot of generators on here under the i believe it's the other names generators where you could get Names for musicians, names for holy books, book titles, evil organizations. The, the list really does go on and on and on. And there's even a section of description generators where if you need to come up with a, for example, I'll do it, reuse here, a dragon description generator. You can go to the description generators, hit dragon description, and you get things like with wide crimson eyes that sit well within the creature's horned hard skull. It gives it a terrifying look and appearance, and it goes on like this. Now, all of these generators on this website are fantastic, and I could do an entire adventurous pack 
on these in their own right. But this is actually going to be a bit of a twofold because I found out that Emily has also created a series of tools and she has put these on a second website that she's got called rollforfantasy.com. And if you look at the amount of generators and things that are on the main fantasy name generators website and you think there's a lot there, just the stuff on Roll for Fantasy has been taken to the next level. On this, she has tools, guides, puzzles, music, and DIY. Now, under guides, basically, if you like our short rest segments, that's what Emily has under here. She has guides on how to DM, guides on how to describe spells, guides on what to do to handle metagaming and loot distribution. Under the tools section, it takes everything that the random generators do and goes one step further and adds a whole layer of interactivity. So as an example, there's a summoning circle creator. So you choose your summoning circle background, you then click on all the individual slots, add colored runes to them. You then hit generate an image and this then turns it into an image that you can then print out. And then helpfully, she's also got a button next to this particular one that says summon demon. And when you click it, it pulls in a randomly generated demon to go along with this summoning circle. There's a uh, tarot card creator as well, which doesn't just, you know, design the tarot cards for you, but it can actually put them into a layout and you can interactively click on each one to flip it all over as it progresses. There's combat and initiative trackers on here. There is encounter difficulty credit. You can create your own calendars. There is so much under the tools section. Puzzles has a section containing, as the name implies, puzzles, but as anybody who plays D&D knows, puzzles are one of those things that it's actually quite hard to get right, and there's things in here that really do help to lay out exactly how the puzzle works and how you can incorporate it into your games. Uh, the DIY section, uh, Emily takes us through how she's created her own Game Master screen, how she has etched things into different bits of glassware, how she creates paper gems and paper figurines for all of her games with lots of photos, including uh, cost of materials and just really detailed step-by-step -step instructions. And then finally, if doing all of this wasn't enough, she even makes royalty-free music, which is in music and then songs, and she's got, I think it's about... I want to say 25-ish albums, um, but it's 130-odd songs in total, and all of them are actually really decent. I've done a random sampling of them. Uh, Viking, so far, is my favourite track uh, of hers. And yeah, basically, my mind is blown away that this is just done by a single individual who just created the site as a hobby, and it's exploded from there. So yeah, the pros of it, like I said, there is practically anything that you could need to generate or want to create on this website and unlike other generators that you found out on the internet a lot of them use what are called markov chains now without getting too deep into the weeds and people will probably write letters about it a markov chain is if you give a computer a set of data say a list of words like fruits for example it will analyze all the names figure out which vowel pairings are common and which consonant pairings are common and then it tries to have a guess by smushing certain things together and so you know it might take lemon and apple and you might end up with an, an apple or a lemon or something like that. Emily's name generators seem to be a lot more curated, a lot more handcrafted, there's a lot more attention to detail and it seems as if they're not using Markov chains so it seems to be that every single generator that's on there if you go to generate, for example, the list of, say, ninja and assassin names, that it may be pulling from a huge list and building components up, but she's built them in such a way that it's not necessarily obvious and it doesn't feel like it's come from a generator. Um, the cons, though, because we always like to do both sides of it, and, you, you know, bear in mind this is a single person who did it as a hobby. The website, as you might imagine, feels like somebody who has created a website for their first time. Uh, that is to say that there's little things, for example, it's not too good on mobile. Um, some of the generators can be a bit buggy if you try and use it on mobile along with the navigation. Um, and the whole thing, it doesn't, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's literally not up to like Apple standards, Google standards, Microsoft standards. That doesn't make it a bad site though. It is quite clear to use. It's relatively easy to navigate your way around. Um, it just doesn't have that professional layer of polish. But 
given the amount of stuff that Emily is doing for this, and she also runs D&D games in her, what I presume is very little spare time, um, I think it's a fantastic resource. So yeah, fantasynamegenerators.com and rollforfantasy.com. Links to both of them will be in the show notes. But uh, yeah, guys, I obviously sort of threw these out to you, let you play around with them. Yeah, give us your thoughts and feelings. I'm not done playing yet. I'm I'm this I'm the same. Yeah, so this is literally the problem that I had with this as well, is that like I said, fantasy name generators I have been using, I usually keep it open at my table, and if I need a name for something, just ah, there we go, that'll do. I'll use that as a name, that's fine. As I was going through it, today I found uh Roll for Fantasy, and I found it about an hour and a half before recording and i have been playing around with so many different things on there i barely made it to the recording on time and what i'm trying to say is if i stopped playing so i could record this show you guys can as well so one of my favorite things so far about this site the fantasy name generators one not only does she have dragon names she's got draconae names Chinese dragon names and dragon kin names. So it's not just one type. You can pull from lots of different genres there that are all somewhat the same, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there is a real level of granularity to this whole website. I do like that on the Chinese dragon name generator, she has the two words that make up the actual name and shows you what it is. So, Kenwei means heavenly stomach. <laughs> but uh, okay. but she's got Laolong, a tiger dragon, Ginlong, eagle dragon. These are cool. Right. Another thing I want to say is I always am drawn to the more silly aspects of generators. So when I saw that there was a dating agency name generator on this site, <laughs> I had to <laughs> click on it. <laughs> And I've what have you got, got? What dating agency are you going to I'm open? I'm probably going to have to open up Blushes and Sparks. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I myself am setting up a daycare agency. This is Rainbow and Sunshine Daycare, which was part of the Bright Eyes Preschool <laughs> group. And on Roll for Fantasy, I cannot believe some of the creators that she has on here she has she has one yeah. to create the interior of your planet like right? the actual planetary yeah. layers all the way down to the core yep and this is why i said map making was only a or rather ostron said map making was only a small part of it in the intro because yeah she's got a castle builder where you can build out she create blueprints there's a dungeon creator um you could literally do everything from the solar system right down to everything that's inside the planet plus all the shops and what they contain and what their names are and what the flags are and it's just it's immense it it's is so really immense. fantastic and honestly i kind of want to blow you guys off and just play with this the rest of the night <laughs> uh Ostrom, did you have any thoughts i don't know i was waiting for you two to stop talking I I agree basically with what most of you said. I really like the fact that, particularly for the name generators, there is a description of what the what sort of the initial starting point was for them, which yeah. I always appreciate because it gives you an idea of where the or what types of names you're likely to get. There was a little bit of that on the the Abifala site, the, the wiki yep. generator. On occasion, some of their generators would go into, well, this is how the names are being formulated or what uh, base pieces we're using to build it. Emily apparently put them on everything, so she has clear descriptions of, okay, when you're using a particular generator, this is what you're likely to get, which I think is helpful because there are certain expectations that people have when they go into it. So if they go into a fantasy name generator, they could be coming at it from a variety of different fantasies because, you know, Game of Thrones and World of Warcraft are both technically fantasy. So... Right, yeah. I think it's really nice that they took the time to go into the details of what the etymology of all the different names is. 
The only downside on that is that in some cases it pushes the actual generation words below the fold, which is... Right. It sort of sabotages the ease of use, although there are... It saves itself because you can regenerate lists without the whole page reloading most of the time, so you can just keep scrolling through, and yeah, but other than that, you guys basically covered it. Both of these sites are very nice resources, and they're... Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to bring up. They're organized more intuitively than a lot of generation sites. Um, Because I remember with one of them, we actually spent some time discussing how there were a lot of generators that weren't necessarily where you'd expect to find them. And Yes, Seventh Sanctum, I think that one was. Right. This site does not have that problem at all. Yeah, and I I largely feel that that's because Emily learned how to make sites as she went. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there was a heavy amount of manual menu creation rather than generation going on. Yeah. So links to both of these websites, fantasynamegenerators.com and rollforfantasy.com, can be found in our show notes. But is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Have you found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventures and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing us sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This week in D&D News, with the upcoming release of Descent into Avernus, the D&D Adventurers League has been busy revising and updating some of its core rules, and have put up an early preview of the Season 9 Players and DMs Guide for Community Review. For those unfamiliar, the D&D Adventurers League is classed as Organized Play, or an official ongoing D&D game run by Wizards of the Coast that takes place in friendly local gaming stores the world over. Each time a new product is launched, a new season of Adventurers League play begins, and there's always a few changes. The first major change that we're introduced to with the preview rules focuses on monetary rewards. Previous changes to the League's rules saw what some players and DMs viewed as overly harsh penalties, effectively swapping out gold earned in-game for treasure points that parties could then use to purchase items. All well and good in theory, but it practically made Wizards impossible to play. For Season 9, the Adventurers League now lets characters keep an equal share of whatever treasure the group finds during the session, up to a certain cap, above which anything is lost. There's a formula for figuring out how much gold you get based on your character tier, but if a third level character earned 4 treasure points during the season, then they could keep up to 100 gold, 25 gold per treasure point. Crucially, any treasure found mid-session in this manner can't actually be spent until the end of the session, which is when the cap is calculated and applied. The next change that Season 9 will bring is something that we've covered previously on the show, seasonality. Essentially, the Adventurers League would like you to create a new character for each season, and so they mentioned that they would be introducing a rule that made you pick a season for your character to belong to. You could still play that character in other seasons, but they wouldn't be able to earn any rewards for doing so. With this preview release, we've gotten a bit more information on the specifics. Any existing characters will be classified as legacy characters. This means that they can play in any content in Seasons 1 through 8, community-created content modules, and Season 0 adventures, whilst earning full checkpoints, story awards, and magic items. Legacy characters can play in Season 9, and they will receive full checkpoints, but will not be eligible to keep story awards or magic items. New characters that are created get to choose whether they're a Season 9 character or a Legacy character. If you opt to be a Legacy character, then the rules Lennon just mentioned apply. If you choose to be a Season 9 character, however, then your character will earn full checkpoints, story awards, and magic items from Season 9 adventures, community-created content modules, and Season 0 adventures. Season 9 characters can play Season 1 through 8 material, but will not be eligible to keep story awards or magic items, however they will still receive full checkpoints. At the time of recording, no mention has been made of what will happen to Season 9 characters when Season 10 starts in the future. The preview rules will be available for two weeks before a survey is launched for feedback, so if you play in the Adventurers League, be sure to check out these preview rules and get your feedback into the team. So they're finally addressing the need for gold, which is good. Yeah, most of the changes when I saw them... um, I mean, the seasonality is a bit odd, 
but yeah, I can see the I can see the argument basically, particularly in terms of they want to sell new adventures, they want people to be playing the latest stuff. It reminded me not a little bit of the way they run Magic the Gathering things, where oh, after yeah. a certain point sets of cards only become eligible in like legacy playing styles and the newest sets are only allowed in the newest versions of play obviously D&D isn't coming out with content as fast something that I think everyone is in favor of given how fast books were being published back in 4th edition The, the pattern is very similar but since the pace of release is slower i think it's more manageable so one of the other things that came up a lot with the seasonality was about dm quests so for those that don't know dm quests are basically if wizards want to incentivize dms to complete certain objectives or to get through a particular module then they will give the dm a reward for making their players reach a certain objective point etc and this also works by getting a load of people who would traditionally be players to also dm because there are things that you can earn as a dm by completing these dm quests that you can't get as a player so as an example and this is one of the things that is quite contentious the dnt adventures league has a very restrictive php plus one rule which means you can use the player's handbook and one other source to create your character um as a result this means that a lot of people for example can't play an Oathbreaker Paladin because that appears in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and if you need backgrounds from a different book, like an adventure module and so forth, it can be tricky trying to fit it into that restrictive nature. So what they have allowed is one of the rewards from the DM's quests is, as a player, you can use an Oathbreaker without violating your PHP plus one rule. So that's you know something really good for DMs to do. However, the unlock for that the amount of quests that the dm has to complete to get that reward means that a lot of dms are only just being able to unlock the oathbreaker which because of the way that they've now said that the dm rules are going to uh, expire and given legacy characters and so forth means that the dms would have just got this oathbreaker but now they can only play it in old content and they can't bring that character through to a new one um, into season nine to be able to carry it on there so the seasonality it has pros and it has cons and i still feel that seasonality goes against the drop in drop out nature of the actual play of the adventurers league system you know wizards have used this as a carrot to say hey we need more dms come on come and join us you get this cool stuff oh by the way you can't actually use that now i would actually see how that could turn people off from dming as well right yeah but they are addressing the gold balance so that is something and i think if you run it in accordance with adventurers league rules it could actually get to the point where the players don't even realize that there is a cap because the adventurers league is a little bit more stingy with the amount of stuff that they give out during sessions uh, intentionally to make it so that characters aren't ridiculously overpowered yeah but in the case of this gold thing it was making wizards ridiculously underpowered because they couldn't oh, yeah. get any new spells so right that's definitely a good change. I'm glad that they listened to that. Well, as a very wise, disembodied voice once said, You must gather your party before venturing forth. Yes, fans of the Baldur's Gate video games will likely have that forever etched into their memories, with the original debuting in 1998 and Baldur's Gate 2 The Throne of Baal, the very last one, coming out in 2001. Since then, there have been enhanced editions of the game, many of which are now making their way to consoles in September of this year, as we said in last week's show, but aside from those, it kind of seemed like the Baldur's Gate series of games was set to sit forever in video game history. Well, that was until the original creators released Baldur's Gate The Siege of Dragonspear in 2016, over 18 years since the initial game's release. That, along with the enhanced editions and the surge of popularity in Dungeons & Dragons in general, led to many fans clamouring for a new Baldur's Gate video game, one that takes advantages of modern computer hardware. Many fans turned to other games for their fix, such as Pillars of Eternity or Divinity Original Sin, but nothing quite hit that Baldur's Gate itch. If you find yourself in a similar position, and somehow you've managed to avoid the internet for the past few days, then boy do we have some news for you. 
As you will have no doubt heard, Belgian video game producers Larian Studios, developers of the critically acclaimed Divinity Original Sin and Divinity Original Sin 2, have announced that they're developing Baldur's Gate 3, and from what little we've seen so far, it seems to be fairly well along in development. Built on an enhanced version of the engine used for Divinity Original Sin 2, Baldur's Gate 3 will use 5th edition rules rather than the previous game's adherence to 2nd edition rules. There's currently no news on the release date, but considering there's a lot of new things coming out in September of this year, we think you'll see it sooner rather than later. So I've got a couple of theories, and I have heavily invested in tinfoil for this. So whilst I'm assembling my hat, which is nothing like Ryu's hat, um, why don't we break down the trailer a bit and just describe for the audience at home exactly what we're seeing here. So the video starts out with a soldier walking through Baldur's Gate, stepping very nimbly and very cautiously over several dead bodies when all of a sudden he notices a change coming over himself. And then the change comes very quickly and he doesn't quite understand what's happening until he turns into an illithid. And then at the very end of the video, a lightning strike flashes behind the newly born illithid and we see an army of illithids and a possible nautiloid in the background. You know where nautiloids come from? I'll take that as a yes. Um, for, for those who are unfamiliar, nautiloids are basically uh, illithid spaceships, which you may see in some sort of spelljammer type setting. Obviously, this is a video game. Doesn't hint at a product coming or anything like that. I was just saying they were there. Time for a theory. Are we sitting comfortably? Because... Uh, it's probably going to be boring. So, can you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, a little event called uh, D&D Live 2019, where... How did good. I miss that? Why yeah. didn't Never anyone tell me? Well, luckily, we recorded several podcasts on it, so just go back and listen to, I think it's episode 75, episode 74, maybe? Something like that. Anyway, go back, listen to that. It was great. Um, the, the main theme of this was Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, and... Everything was about Avernus and Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate and Avernus and you go into Baldur's Gate and you go into Avernus and then on the last day they kind of went, oh by the way, Eberron. And everybody was like, sorry, what? Eberron? Like, what? And I even said on the show at the time, that seemed like, you know, they snuck it in at the end when nobody was really paying attention. It And to me it just seemed really out of place. I think that what was actually supposed to happen is that this announcement of Baldur's Gate 3 was supposed to be what occurred during the end concert and there's a couple of things that I've got that I think can help tie all this together so firstly Baldur's Gate right that's that's a pretty good giveaway um, secondly one of the things that we know about the game is that it does take place after the tabletop module so we don't know if it's necessarily a direct sequel but it definitely takes place following the events of Descent into Avernus. Secondly, the establishing shot of Baldur's Gate in the city looked incredibly familiar when I was looking at it, and so I went back and watched the opening ceremonies of D&D Live 2019, and they used this as part of an intro video. Um, they just had it up on screen, um, and when I say that the images look similar, I'm not just saying it's a screenshot of Waterdeep. I mean, the clouds are identical, the lighting is identical, and it was clear that the opening ceremonies used the same artwork as the beginning of the trailer. And another thing that makes me think this is they had a lot of guests on. Uh, they had the people talking about the Young Adventurers books and so on. But there was one person that really kind of stood out as being a bit unusual of a choice to bring on. So from Wizards of the Coast, they had, for example, Chris Perkins and Jeremy Crawford and Kate Welch and Nathan Stewart, who you would expect to be there. And then they also brought on their brand and licensing manager, who she did talk about a couple of products that they were doing as cross promotions, but it did seem like a very weird choice to be out there. So putting all of these elements together, the fact that um, Baldur's Gate 3 is a huge thing that the community were waiting for, the fact that Eberron didn't seem to fit into it at all, and we heard no hints of an Eberron book whatsoever, and it came totally out of the left wing. The fact that there were so many pieces that used the same stuff from the game trailer, it just all feels like it should have gone in there. And just to double up on the whole brand manager 
um, licensing manager person being a guest that was worth highlighting. There was a second video that Larian Studios have released, which was the best way I can describe it. It's kind of like a behind the scenes. And they're discussing, oh, here's how we got the license for Baldur's Gate. But it is very highly produced. It features a couple of people like Nathan Stewart and Mike Mills. And the whole plot centers around the CEO, uh, Sven Vinke, uh, kidnapping Mike Mills in an iron flask and taking him back to Larian so that they have the secret source of D&D. And the whole thing felt like it was highly polished and designed to be played to a live audience it wasn't the sort of thing that you would just release on youtube so that's my theory is that this should have been part of dnd live 2019 not eberron and i'm gonna take tin fall off now because i'm beginning to sweat so i think you're wrong <laughs> okay <laughs> which is partially i'm taking that stance <laughs> because it's usually a safe bet okay but yeah. um <laughs> I think you're wrong, but only in the specifics. Oh, okay, so got the right answer, just the wrong workings. Right. So they did say that there was going to be an announcement during the concert. I don't think Baldur's Gate 3 was supposed to be it. Okay. I think it was supposed to be one of the smaller products that got announced during the main show instead. Like either the expansion to um, Dungeon Mayhem or the Rick and Morty versus D&D one. Because, like you said, you've got two videos, one of them fairly lengthy in terms of modern promotion videos, and you have a possible interview guest that may or may not have been on the docket to speak about this. So I think the Baldur's Gate announcement was supposed to be coming as part of the main event. Oh, okay. Fine. And then the one of the, like I said, one of the smaller products or one of the ones with less stuff around it would have been dropped during the concert. Because like you said, I, I watched the behind the scenes video and it's the type of video that really only works with a captive audience. It's got too much camp and too little concrete information to be the type of informational reveal video that modern video game audiences are used to getting. Right. And it doesn't have enough entertainment value to just stand on its own as a video you would pull up on YouTube to watch for the sake of, oh, I want to watch a funny slash interesting slash entertaining video. So I feel like they would have needed to show that during the live event. I don't think it would have made sense for them to take that much time out of the middle of a concert to okay, do it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I'll go with so that. So I, I think it was... I think they knew they weren't going to be announcing this fairly early in the live event, filled in other things, realized they had promised to release or talk about releasing something during the concert, and then said, uh, what have we got in the hopper? And somebody pulled out the Eberron book. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm actually going to count that as you're agreeing with me. Again, if I'm going to go down, I'm taking everybody here with me. Speaking of, what are your thoughts on this whole thing, Rio? Not necessarily just on my theory, just overall. Well, I'm going to go on to my thoughts of the actual trailer because Ooh, we, all, we all know how awful I am with that tinfoil hat. Um, <laughs> I am very intrigued by this. I've always been intrigued by illithids and including them in play, and you just don't see them very often. Certainly not in most of the published adventures that are out. I think the only one that's out for 5e is the one that's in... Dungeon of Mad Mage, right? Yeah, the pirate captain, the pirate elephant. I think, think you're right there. That's yeah. the only one that I know of. So I'm excited that they're bringing that in. That being said, that Nautiloid in the background is a bold move. Yes. I'm, I'm like, I'm having chills because I'm thinking they must be coming for something really important if they're letting one of their Nautiloids be seen. Yeah, well, I mean, 
all indications from what we've seen in the trailer is that most of Boulder's Gate is probably dead or very, very tentacly. Mm-hmm. So that might not be too bold a move if there's no one around to witness it. But yes, we had uh, in the trailer the the way that they animated the guy going through the uh, ceramorphosis is pretty um pretty cool. I think a little bit gruesome. I think if you're not expecting it, but pretty cool generally. That is exactly how I pictured it to happen, though. The oh yeah, the description in Volos does say it takes a week and not a few seconds, as it did in the trailer, but. I still feel like it would be that gruesome. That could have arguably just been the last stage. True. Or it could be accelerated for some reason that we don't know yet. Yeah, possibly. I I have had more campaigns with Illithids involved, or one in particular because the DM also reads an astonishing amount of Lovecraftian fiction in his spare time, so there are Illithids (laughs) everywhere in my game. They're a very different type of enemy, and they can also be problematic uh, because there's a lot of baggage that comes with them, both like in-game lore baggage and metagame baggage. The metagame baggage mostly centers around two things. The first one is Spelljammer. And the second one is psionics. <laughs> Both of you your know, favorite subjects. Yeah, two two of my favorite subjects in all of <laughs> D&D. Now, I will say, before all of the Spelljammer people start jumping up and down, screaming in excitement, first of all, I will acknowledge the Nautiloid is explicitly an Illithid spaceship that got its start in Spelljammer. That said, in Volo's guide, the description focuses a lot more on them using the ships in the astral plane, not in any of the Spelljammer environments. Also, the way that they're described makes them sound a lot more like Illithid airships than Illithid spaceships. So that's that out of the way. I will acknowledge, however, that if, you know, my own... Here's my tinfoil hat theory coming out of this. Oh, okay. If Baldur's Gate 3 is following on from the story of Descent into Avernus, and it isn't a complete, okay, Baldur's Gate 3 just got done with this, so here's a few NPC names we're going to throw in there. If that actually is part of the plot somehow, I think it is possible they will include rules for psionics in Descent into Avernus to accommodate the incoming illithids. Okay. All right. I bet that makes you really happy, doesn't it? It makes me cautious, but I'm already cautious about Descent into Avernus, so it it doesn't yeah. change a whole lot. I don't think we're going to see Sonics in that. I think, given how delicate it is, that it requires a bit more playtesting. Uh, you never know. I, I guess, actually, we will know in September. But uh, yeah, so Baldur's Gate 3 is coming out. We see the Flaming Fist have returned. It's all going to be in Baldur's Gate. There are mind flares everywhere. It's made by Larian Studios. I thought Divinity, Original Sin, and Original Sin 2 were fantastic. And they played quite a lot like D&D being turn-based rather than real-time with pulsing as the Pillars of Eternity and Baldur's Gate style do. This should be good. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm annoyed that I don't know when it's coming out. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's check out some wisdom from the masters as we continue our series on being a first-time DM. I am more than the exalted ruler of this land and the master of all I survey. You think you're the only hero in the world? You become part of a bigger universe. Okay, that's a researching case that's less urgent. I think this one. Yep, chronic dice fudging. Dear Sir... No, you can't rub the numbers off. Just put down the D20. Oh, geez, this is a lot of paperwork. Um, have we got a problem? Yeah, we got letters from a bunch of DMs with, uh, I guess you'd say, trauma after their first sessions. Okay, so this one, yeah, classic rules lawyer. Anyone got a potion of charm person I can mail out? Uh, so I'm 
guessing our last short rest didn't quite cut it then. I think it was okay. There are a few things we should add, though. I've been keeping a list of common complaints. Last time, we talked about some general tips for preparing for your first session as a DM, but we didn't touch on a lot of things that might happen while actually playing the game. We're going to cover some of the most common issues that cause problems while running games until you've established yourself. Now, keep in mind, these will all be recommendations based on our and some other popular DM's experiences. Your particular situation and solution to some of these issues may vary. Also, some of these tips will be very DM-specific, but a number of them can also help out players, so take a note regardless of which side of the screen you're on. First, let's cover some more preparation and quick-fix ideas that may help your games. Now, before we start, there's nothing wrong with getting the rules out at the table, especially if you're a first-time or infrequent DM. However, one of the main areas that usually slows down the pace of the game is spellcasting. We mentioned that players should know how their spells work, but for frequent spells, that's something the DM should be aware of as well. For example, if you have a cleric that uses Toll the Dead as their default cantrip, you should make sure you have quick access to your creature's wisdom save bonuses. Learning more details about spells can help in the long run, too, so if a player forgets how much damage a fireball does, you'll be able to save time and tell them rather than waiting for someone to look it up. Another good reason to learn some of the spells is if you use creatures that are spellcasters. Monster stat blocks usually simply list the spells those creatures know. If you have to look up a spell in the middle of combat, that's going to slow things down, so try to take the time to look up what spells the creature has access to, and then pick one or two you'll use regularly and either memorize or find a spell card that tells you how the spell works. Electronic devices can actually help with this, even if you just have a phone and you're not using a tablet or laptop at your table. And we've covered plenty of spellbook apps that can assist with this in our Adventurous Pack segments, of which you can find a full list with links over on our website. Another method is if there's a particular rule or spell you find yourself referencing a lot, well, snap a picture of it or take a screenshot so you can quickly pull it up without having to flip through pages and pages or sorting through search results. Also, electronically, a local picture is still accessible even if your internet goes offline. Another common complaint that comes up, the inevitable crit on a low-level character. While in combat, particularly at lower levels, your goblin chieftain will have found their way over to the warlock and you roll a 20 to hit, resulting in 22 damage that's about to descend on the warlock that has a total of 10 HP. This is when you have to decide how you're going to deal with the fact that probability does not care that you want to tell a good story. Dice fudging, or taking advantage of rolling behind the screen in order to fake the result of the roll, is a divisive topic in the D&D community. Lennon steadfastly refuses to fudge a dice roll, whereas I find it preferable to traumatizing players. I think we can guess which side of the fence Ryu falls on, especially if she's wearing the hat. Whether you think it helps to tell a better story, or the dice are the dice and you're taking away from the spirit of the game by fudging the rules, as the DM you have to decide where you fall on that spectrum and what your stance will be. With that issue, don't be surprised if your convictions get tested. Declaring you are always going to roll the dice and let fate decide is fine, but when the first-time player who's so proud of their wizard they spent all of Session Zero putting together and wrote a four-page backstory to really get into the role-playing is about to be insta-killed by the rampaging owlbear before they ever take a turn in combat, you'll have a hard choice to make. Having said that, a character dying can actually be helpful for everyone involved. A lot of people, both players and DMs, assume that a character dying is a failure. Either the player didn't account for everything they should have before taking action, or the DM designed an encounter incorrectly. But character deaths are part of D&D. Granted, the game is skewed to allow characters to survive for the most part, but a character death can be a great way to highlight the role-playing aspects of the game. How do the other characters deal with the death? Do they want to spend the time and resources to try to get the character resurrected? Also, despite the cliché complaints about it, the player doesn't have to choose a totally different character to replace the one that died. But do everyone a favor and don't make them the long-lost twin that no one knew about. That is a bit too cliche. Speaking of role-playing, as the DM you have the opportunity to role-play a number of NPCs, particularly if you're running a published adventure. Many of them can even join the player's party and adventure along with them as companions. 
A key thing to remember in these cases is that the players are supposed to be the heroes. If your NPC starts solving all the puzzles and finding all the clues, you're taking attention away from the players and depriving them of the opportunity to play parts of the game. NPCs should really only step in if there are things that the players absolutely need to know that they can't possibly find out for themselves, or if the player's characters are explicitly asking for information or assistance. Otherwise, just have the NPC quietly hang out in the background. If you've already given too much away with an NPC, or if you give away a piece of information by accident, don't worry about it. It may mean some parts of the adventure are easier than others, but this can also be an important learning experience. You can try to improvise or plan an alternate path for the adventure to account for the knowledge the players have. Or you can work with the players and see if they're willing to roleplay as if they didn't get the knowledge early. That latter approach is especially useful because it gives everyone practice in dealing with metagaming or at least it will highlight how people are likely to react in a metagaming situation. As we mentioned last week, there will be times that you're called upon to referee the game, so make sure you have access to your rule sources and the adventure module for reference. And even though it might take a little time away from the gameplay, don't be afraid to pause and look up something during the game. If you can't find an answer to a problem or you're feeling pressured to move on, simply make a ruling in your best judgment and continue. Something that Lennon often does at his tables when confronted by questions he doesn't have an answer for is to make a ruling, but let the players know that you'll clarify it later. As an example, Hey Lennon, if I'm a multi-classed wizard sorcerer, and this spell appears on both the wizard and sorcerer spell lists, should I be casting with intelligence or charisma? Given an example like that, I'd probably say something along the lines of, well, given your character's backstory for now, let's use charisma, but we'll look it up after the game, so that may change going forward. Speaking of going forward, let's shift gears a little and talk about pacing. When using written adventure modules, don't worry if you don't get as far as the book thinks you will, and similarly, don't panic if the players sprint through the material. It will probably take a few sessions before you figure out exactly what your players do and how fast and what takes them longer. Some player groups will need the entire session to resolve simple combat scenarios, whilst others can get bogged down for hours over the strategy and planning for something as simple as unlocking a door and going into an abandoned house. At the same time, try to read the player's involvement level and why it's actually taking so long. If they're all jumping onto the combat and discussing the minutiae and tactics, that's fine. But if discussions with NPCs are taking forever because you have to repeat everything because no one's paying attention, make a note of that. Or if they're having issues with a major part of the story, remember what that part is. After the first session, take the temperature of the group and ask for feedback on what they liked and what needs help. Also, if you are concerned about a particular thing you did, talk to your players. Ask the players for feedback. But remember, if they have constructive criticism, it does not mean you failed. As mentioned before, there are lots of people who think Matt Mercer is the greatest DM ever, but there's an equal number of people that could win a chance for him to DM a game session for them and would say, eh, I'll pass. If you did something the players weren't enthralled with, just do it differently next time. You do need to be the one coming up with answers, but you don't have to have all the answers all the time. Above all, remember, make sure you're having fun. All of the above can be stressful and occasionally confusing or frustrating, but running a good game is rewarding for everybody at the table. So, speaking of answers, I've just picked up this one. What's wrong with this chap? Uh, what are they saying are the symptoms? Uh, I mean, I don't really know. It's just a note. There's no name. It just says, she's so mean. I didn't know she could be so mean. Oh, that's that's not... It, yeah, um, that one fell out of my scrapbook. It's the note I got after my first time DMing. <laughs> Suddenly, your interactions with the killer DM make so much more sense. Right, but before she shows up to start telling stories, let's head over to the scrying pool to see what the listeners have to say. What news from the door? It's time for another good idea, bad idea. Good idea, asking a question. Bad idea, tarasking a question. Last week, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, are you going to be putting any gates of Baldur on your consoles? Does Sly Flourish's latest collection of adventures sound fantastic? And what's your take on the exhaustion as damage mechanic? A good way to increase tension and fear of death in players, or a needless increase in difficulty with problematic loopholes? 
Smurfnevelin Cav on Discord says, The current rules for exhaustion terrify me as they are, but very rarely do they come into play. Death has been made so easily avoidable in mid to late levels that most parties don't even worry about it. A cleric or paladin with a collection of diamonds pretty much makes you a master of death. I hate this. Death is a normal and natural part of life and any well-sold story. I would love to see a mechanic put in place to mitigate this and make the specter of death a bit more relevant. I'm just not sure that this exhaustion rule is the way to do so. I wish they had made spells like Revivify and Resurrection even higher level spells than they are, or better yet, get rid of them outright. A pretentious Latin name on Discord says, I agree with Ostron that while exhaustion is a compelling game mechanic, subbing it in for damage is not the best way to do it. While it might be more true to life, D&D isn't really balanced around the death spiral that exhaustion would cause in battle. Once you start to lose, you start to lose more. Realistic, but probably not fun. I brought exhaustion into my game more for environmental effect. I like that it allows DMs to really amp up the risks of outdoor expeditions. I began my most recent campaign with a shipwreck, and instead of taking damage as usual, the PCs and NPCs got levels of exhaustion. A few of them made it up to even 4 or 5 levels of exhaustion and required help from others to even move, which caused a great deal of tension when drowned zombies started emerging from the ocean. I wanted to capture the feeling of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild in a hex crawl, and with exhaustion as a penalty that can be inflicted by environmental effects and never scales, the wilds themselves can stay a major adversary at all levels of play without being too crushing early on. This is true despite the presence of a ranger, a druid, and a nature cleric, who can infamously negate many other dangers of exploring the wilderness. Stompius on Discord wrote in to say, As a player with a path of the Berserker Barbarian, I know too well the terrible effects of exhaustion. One point early on in our campaign, due to several big nasties and a little premature frenzy on my part, by the time the boss battle was over, poor Thanen was suffering from three levels of exhaustion. That being said, I like the idea of getting to a point where exhaustion affects players due to damage and etc, but the elimination of hit points seems too simplistic and unbalanced a method. How would resistance work in this strange simplistic world? Wouldn't this just encourage all close combat characters to disengage after every attack? Also, find me a rogue who doesn't love rolling two handfuls of dice after critting their sneak attack. The damaged dice are the most fun dice in the game, regardless of which side of the screen you're on. Indigo Spectre on Discord says, The video game releases are tempting, but time and money to replay games doesn't seem like the best choice right now. I like any new adventures. Taking others' ideas to incorporate into my own makes my DMing that much richer for my players. I have often been annoyed by the trinary nature of HP in 5e. You're up, you're unconscious, you're dead. Despite the fact that HP has a long scale before reaching zero, there is no difference between the first HP lost and the last. This aligns with 5e's simplify if possible for ease of play philosophy. I have thought of employing negative status effects in a scale on that last 25% of HP. A blend of exhaustion rules and something else for every 5% below 25% that you drop. This does create a greater danger of the death spiral, and so I haven't spent more time to make it work. And Carcer on Discord says, I will probably get Baldur's Gate, but mostly for nostalgia. The games were fun, but I am spending time on preparing for my D&D session nowadays, and I can't let the guys down. I adore the collection of adventure-type books. These really help to add to my campaign without them taking over the whole world. I will absolutely be picking up Sly Flourish's collection. The exhaustion idea is fantastic, but if I'm honest, I won't be applying it for two reasons. Firstly, we are too deep into a long campaign to change things up that drastically, and the players are enjoying the game as it is. The second reason is that I feel that it changes our favourite game too much. If you take away the hit point system, which is the concept that D&D was based around, then it just isn't D&D anymore. I know that 5th edition has had its flaws, but I really enjoy knowing how it works as it is now. Too much change, and I may as well be trying to learn a new system. Turkey Guy wrote in on Discord to say, I've played most of the older CRPGs to some completion each, but usually end up getting distracted before finishing them, which is the only reason I haven't sought out the enhanced editions. The exhaustion mechanic sounds a bit too half-baked to me, though I haven't read it. I really like the Fighting Spirit variant from the Angry GM, and that fixes any problem I had with a lack of hit point performance curve. So a lot of people seem to agree that there needs to be more than just get to zero hit points and then start dying, but they also don't seem to like the solution that D&D Beyond came up with. Right, I'm, I've also got to be honest, I am aware of the Angry GM. I've never read a lot of their stuff, though. Are any of you guys familiar with the Fighting Spirit variant? 
it has merit. So basically the way it works is you generate your normal hit point pool as you do currently for 5th edition. Then you use your constitution modifier and your current level to generate a separate pool. So the smaller pool becomes what are actually your hit points. The larger one then becomes spirit points. Spirit points function exactly like hit points do currently. They get depleted first, and they are also what any resistances and temporary HP apply to, also any healing. Your hit points only start taking penalties once your spirit points run out. But crucially, once your spirit points run out, you accrue a whole rash of status effects that make it, and this is key, they make it harder for you to be an effective combatant, but they don't make it harder for you to survive. So basically it just means that if you want to actively engage the enemy, you're not going to be as good at it. If you want to back off and hide, you're still going to be able to do that. And then, like I said, all the healing goes directly toward spirit points. You only regain your actual hit points during a long rest. So, theoretically, what this is supposed to do is once players start getting low on the spirit points, they start to become a lot more cautious, but they can still function, and it isn't an all-or-nothing situation. Right, you've got that little bit of buffer before you have to really worry about going unconscious. Right, but it also introduces a fear of bad things happening before, oh, I'm actually dying now. Yeah, and I guess the what it's kind of doing there is it's separating, as the name implies someone's drive to fight from their actual flesh and blood. Yeah, exactly. And in general feedback, in response to the short rest we did two weeks ago, Turkey Guy on Discord says, So I just finished last week's episode and had strong feelings about your new player segment. I didn't agree if it was for brand new players to D&D, but was decent for new to a particular table. Also, though I've put a large amount of time and effort into having the physical materials on hand and the pre-work done to allow a table of up to six complete newbies to bring nothing more than themselves to the table and have a great three to four hour introductory session. The advice of them needing to have read the PHB ahead of time for a first game was especially onerous to me. It can be hard enough to bring people into the hobby if they haven't seen stuff like CR. I was the kind of player that read the PHB cover to cover before my first game, but I'm an anomaly. First game of 5e at least. I'd played a few sessions of Dungeon World, and it's much friendlier to newbies. Character creation is something I wouldn't inflict on a beginner player. I made a set of 10 pregens that span most of the core classes, wrote up a 2-3 to sentence pitch for each, and handed that to my most recent table of newbies. They picked what sounded cool, and I handed them a sheet and told them to pick a name. Spellcasters got a spell page and a handful of spell cards. Everyone got a set of dice and a pencil from me, and away we went. I know that's a lot of work that I as the GM chose to put in, but that's my attempt at reducing the not insubstantial barrier to entry. Anyway, I mostly just wanted to say I think it's daunting to expect new players to start by reading the player's handbook to learn to play and create a character before ever playing. Yeah, so just to address that particular block, when we were penning the article there was a lot of discussion that went on. Effectively, what we were trying to do was to not discount any particular listener who may be listening in with the segment that may have one set of publications over another. So what I mean by that is, if you had a player who was sat there listening, who had purchased the player's handbook, we didn't want to say something like, make sure you've read the basic rules on the wizard's website before, because then they would be sat there thinking, well, this $50 book was clearly a waste, I've done the wrong thing. Conversely, we didn't want to have somebody who's only got the basic rules PDF and for us to say, you need to read the player's handbook cover to cover before, you know, that wasn't. So what we were trying to do was to describe that you need to have some familiarity with the rules, whether that's from the player's handbook or the basic rules, 
the situation will apply. But so we were trying to do it without naming a resource whilst also trying to name the resources. So I totally get how that actually would have come across as us trying to tell people to read everything actually wasn't the case and we will issue a correction of that on the show copy that's on the website so thank you turkey guy and indigo spectre also wrote on in discord and said as a dm who runs a weekly game at my friendly local gaming store i encourage new players some people bring friends and relatives having done the work with them but most often people just show up I have made a lot of pre-made characters and have the crunchy necessary work done, but I leave all the optional features open. I ask a short series of questions that get me to a good option for a first character for this new player. Some take the sheet and have to do no extra work, some spend 20 minutes you know, creating character details. I also have a 5-10 to 10 minute tutorial of this is where to find XYZ on your sheet, and this is what I mean when I say ABC. I have a few other players at my table that are good at engaging with new player characters. Most people do tend to come back. With the three consistent DMs that show up and a few more on rotation, the turnout has turned from nine frequent players to over 35 last week. And Svrfnebel and Cav wrote in on Discord on the same topic and said, I think there are no right or wrong ways to introduce new players to D&D. Every DM and every player is going to have a different style of teaching and learning. I for one am a very hands-on learner who benefits from repetition. I was lucky when inviting to my first gaming group. I was the only player with zero RPG background. The DM and I built my character together in conjunction with my player's handbook. Then during gameplay, every one of the other players and the DM took me under their wings to learn the game as a whole. I've never looked back and have been lucky enough to adventure with a handful of other new players and the same experience was used for them. We've turned my son into quite the player, despite his refusal to do paperwork. So I did I did want to say I understand the idea that, oh, how can you force them to read the player's handbook and create a character? That's nuts. But on the other hand, I mean, and I realize it's just two people, but both Turkey Guy and Indigo Spectre described an extreme amount of pre-work they did to basically prevent having to have new players do that so i suppose the idea and i realize as lennon said this may not have come out in the way we presented it is that um i don't think it's necessarily fair or helpful for new players to be completely absolved of having to do any pre-work with their characters whatsoever Maybe for a first initial session, like you've never played an RPG or never seen the game before, that would be warranted. It's certainly going to be easier to introduce them to the game starting out with, here's your character, let's go have fun, as opposed to, here's a blank sheet and here's a bunch of math you have to do. That I get. But I just feel like avoiding character creation entirely isn't necessarily a good move. That, however, is 100% my personal opinion. I can really see both sides of that coin. Character creation really does seem like a lot of work when you're just learning about D&D for the first time. I know that my first bout into character creation, I took one look at that book and I was like, I, do, do I have to read all of this? Aren't we starting our game, like, tomorrow? So now that I'm familiar with it, it might take me 30 minutes to a couple of hours to create a character. But that first one took me, like, three days. Yeah, I think it's, again, it's an issue where there needs to be communication between the DM and the players. Um, Is this going to be our usual line of talk to your DM? Well, I th- I think it's also DM talk to the players, which we pointed out. Like, there needs to be very clear expectations as far as character creation. And if the player doesn't agree with those expectations, they need to let the DM know as soon as possible. Which goes both ways. I mean, if the DM says, oh, I've got these pre-made characters, you don't have to do anything. And the player goes well, I kind of wanted to try to create a character. They need to let the DM know by the same token if the DM says, oh yeah, have your character ready to go by first day and the player's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to build a character. I haven't even bought the player's handbook yet. 
then that's also something that needs to be communicated. And I think the DM needs to be ready for either scenario. On that note, you could also point new players to one of our very first Adventures Pack segments, which I believe was fastcharacter.com. Yep, that'll roll them a character sheet pretty instantly. They can even choose, for example, I want to be a wizard, but it will take care of everything else. Yeah. And so that brings us to this week's community questions. Did you like any of our tinfoil hat theories that we came up with for Baldur's Gate 3? Should we just shut up and enjoy the anticipation? And are the new Season 9 rules an improvement, or are there still some issues that are turning you away from getting involved with the D&D Adventurers League? And do you have any first-time DM stories, either horrors or successes? We would love to hear them. Details on how you can get in touch, coming up next. And so, this brings us to the end of the 76th entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back next week with our 77th entry on June 19th, but before we go, we want to know. For you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on the show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we do always love to hear from you. So take a moment and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventures to join the party. And all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. And don't forget that you can help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and get you access to raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, some Heroes Rise swag, and we've even got a couple of Patreon-exclusive shows in the works. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash heroesrisednd. If a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwen, and Timosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Tajorik, Jonathan Hickman, and the hobbyist, Vince Vept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincevept.bandcamp.com. And Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. In this week's Adventures Pack, Lennon tells us his favorite web... In this week's Adventures Pack, Lennis... Lennis? Yes, Lennis. Have I made my own version of Linux now? Is that what's happening? Linus? Yeah. We got a blanket. But nothing quite hit that Baldur's Gate itch. If you find yourself in a similar position... Baldur's Gate 3 will use 5th edition rules rather than 2nd edition from its predecessors. No. Baldur's no, Gate will. 3... I, it I know, actually I will. Just, <laughs> I, uh... It's probably going to be boring. So, can you guys remember... <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to do that without going through puberty. Bear with me. <laughs> it's probably going to be boring. So, can you guys remember um, a small event that happened a couple of weeks ago called D&D Live 2019? And... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that apparently came as a heck of a shock to Ryu. My coffee just went down the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay? I think so. Hold on. Okay. Uh, but in answer to your question, no, I, I've never heard of that. What happened? <laughs> I'm going to go back and just say that whole thing again. You know what? Cut out everything I just said.